You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. I thought it would be a little more one-sided than it has been, Karen, but we asked the question off yeah. the top of the show. What are you more excited about, the expansion draft or the entry draft? It's close online right now. Slightly under 53% of you are going with my vote and your vote as well, Karen, which is the expansion draft. Pretty close, though. People are pretty compelled by the entry draft, which I suppose isn't as much a surprise here in Western Canada where the Canucks yeah. are picking ninth, the Flames aren't that far after, and people are thinking I might be able to augment my team for the next few years. Yeah, I thought it'd be more one way. I know, like, I understand with Calgary's point of view, you're likely going to know the player that you're going to lose, so you've kind of already resigned yourself to the fact that it's going to be your captain, Mark Giordano, you're going to have to turn that page, and you go from there. Whether or not that actually happens, but that's the expectation as of right now, that that's the player that's going to go. You have... 13th overall pick. No, it's not in the top 10. No, it's not in the top 5, but a 13th overall pick, and should be pointed out the 12th player taken in the draft, is... I mean, it's a player, Scott. Lottery pick. You expect that player to help you down the road, so there's some intrigue about what type of player that could be, who does Brad Treliving and his scouts go after, but it's not someone that you're going to see likely play in the NHL next season. That generally doesn't happen, especially when you look at this year's draft, but if you're Vancouver, you're thinking, okay, well, there's a lot more intrigue around who you're going to lose tomorrow. Do you lose Brayden Holtby and get the cap space? Do Does Brayden Holtby go to another team when the trade freeze is lifted? Does ben, Jim Benning figure something else? Do you lose Colin, the prospect, the second round pick who you invested uh, a lot of development time in? Like, is that someone that you're going to lose to the Kraken for nothing? Someone that could maybe step into the NHL lineup next season? Ninth overall pick? I understand that. It's top 10. What does that mean? But again, it's not really a franchise-defining player in this moment but so I'm a little surprised that it is leaning more heavily towards 50-50 than I thought I thought honestly I thought it was going to be like 80-20 yeah my vote is for the expansion draft but that doesn't mean I'm not interested in the entry draft I absolutely am interested in the entry draft and this year is such a wild card year they don't there doesn't seem to be very much certainty in the draft which could make it very compelling and it could lead to more activity the expansion draft for me is the first domino that changes everything that happens on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday because multiple picks are going to be exchanged. Some of it to protect players inside deals. I don't think as much. Maybe the odd one here or there. Maybe to acquire players like a Mark Giordano. Mm -hmm. And that is part of this conversation as well. Like, what is your biggest nightmare with the expansion draft? And it could be a number of things. It could be Seattle getting too good in the expansion draft. It could be Seattle mm -hmm. taking a guy like Mark Giordano if you're a Flames fan, and then somehow the Oilers make the trade package and Giordano ends up just north of you in Edmonton. I'm not saying that's a fit necessarily, but if you're planning out nightmare scenarios, that probably is what fits for Flames fans, isn't it? A nightmare to see your captain leave for... I don't know if he leaves for nothing in this scenario, Scott, but still leaves the team. But you gain some pretty critical cap space and six point some odd million dollars against the cap in a flat cap era. But to go play two and a half hours north of you for the Oilers, I'd say it's a nightmare scenario for Flames fans. It might be a nightmare scenario for some Oilers fans as well to have that player coming on your team. You'd have two 38-year-olds coming to your team in the same seat. Isn't Duncan Keith that old yet, Scott? Is he 36? Maybe he's a little bit older, but you'd have a blue line pairing of possibly two guys over the age of 35. That might be a nightmare scenario for the Edmonton Oilers. When it comes to Seattle, like, is the nightmare scenario them being too good 
or is it say like it's carrie price coming to seattle a nightmare scenario for fans in these two markets does it matter at this point where it he's matters, in this season? it matters if seattle's better than calgary and vancouver in the early going we saw mm-hmm. how much resentment there was with vegas and there would be similar resentment with seattle and some of that as i've said many times should be directed most of it should be directed at your own team because these tools not an expansion draft but a lot of them ways that you can make deals creative thinking around the cap different ways to acquire players they've been available to these gms for years so that's where most of the resentment should be directed but i also understand it something new shows up something new is better than you right away and you're not happy about it so if Kerry Price is that, if it's just Seattle being better, yeah, that fits the bill. And certainly people don't want to see Seattle win a cup before either of these teams. They don't want them to be anywhere near it before either of these teams. You know what this league is like, and you know what fans mm-hmm. are like. Sorry, you should have to suffer for a while before you get something that I've been looking for my whole life. I know I don't want to get, we are not going to go down this full road, but I, you and I haven't discussed it yesterday. Like, what is your, what is your thinking on Carey Price in Seattle? I gave mine at the top. Like, what is your, are you leaning 50-50? Do you lean one way or the other when it comes to, do you think he'll be a hab next year or a kraken next year? I think he'll be a hab next year. I think Seattle ultimately will stay away from him, but I do think there's a good case to be made on either side of it. I think ultimately with an analytics-driven organization Mm -hmm. that values cap space and realizes the biggest asset this franchise has right now is cap space, I think ultimately that contract will be too much. But they should think about it, and they should think about it long and hard because we know how good – we know how good goaltending can change things early on. We saw what Mark andre Fleury did, and they're not going to lean on Carey Price as much. But if they've already put part of their money into Chris Dreger and they think that that can help them get to the postseason, then Carey Price might be able to do for them what Mark andre Fleury did for Vegas early mm-hmm. on and was certainly back doing again this season. I can see making a case for it, but ultimately, Karen, I think he winds up in Montreal next year. I think they will stay away from the cap hit. I think they will look at other goaltending options available. They've already settled on Chris Dreger based on all reports that are out there. Capo Kakinen mm-hmm. is an attractive option. Do they believe they need a guy like Braden Holpe? If so, can they make Vancouver retain money? Boy, are there some staring contests going on right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think there's been a staring contest and probably not. It's, it's dagger eyes at each other between Ron Francis and Mark Bergevin at this point. I was also thinking, too, like, I mean, the Carey Price, if you thought about the idea, it's because you want a face of the franchise. And I was thinking, too, uh, when it came to who else would be the face of the franchise, like, you don't need to sell the team in the market Really, because this, like you don't have to sell tickets, put it that way. But like, would they be willing to take a flyer on P.K. Subban? I, I understand that he's got a large cap hit and he's a diminished uh, like capacity for where he was at one point. But if you're looking at someone who is sellable and will get out there in as the face of this franchise, does he strike you at all as someone that Seattle will go after? I was just thinking it was, it was a name that got out there because Carey Price is quiet. And yeah, you can sell him but he's not quiet and boisterous. Like P.K. Subban is a boisterous guy that'd be willing to get out there, go into the community, you know, shake hands, kiss babies, do all those kind of things. Like, is that something that you think they consider? How much would New Jersey have to incentivize you to take that contract? With Carey Price, Mm -hmm. you can make a case that despite the massive cap hit, it could live up to it because of the importance of the position. Is there any way P.K. Subban lives up to that cap hit? Mm Mm-hmm. We ask that somewhat rhetorically yeah. because I don't believe there's anyone out there that thinks he will live up to a $9 million cap hit 
in the last year of his deal. So what would New Jersey have to send you? Yeah, Seattle could take on the contract or eat half of it, trade him, whatever it happens to be. Sure, from a marketing standpoint, that's one thing. Carey Price doesn't need to go out and vocally market the team. He's a good person. He's a great go- He's a great person from everything we can tell. He's a great goaltender. You're going to use him to sell based on winning mm-hmm. and reputation, and the excitement comes with all of that. To your point earlier, they don't need to have these – they don't need to have so many personalities on their roster that go out and actually sell the team. They're, the waiting list is long. There's excitement in Seattle. The vibe is real down there. Mm-hmm. No, it was just something I thought out there because I was just very curious in just thinking about faces, quote-unquote faces of the franchise, people that you want to send out and go to businesses and go in the community. And I mean, I understand he lives <laughs> outlives his welcome pretty quickly in markets, but if you're looking at a one, two-year short-term thing, maybe that's something you'd go. Um, back to, do you want to get back to the text message inbox here? Yeah, sure. Expansion draft will offer the Canucks a better chance to make the team better now. Side deals with Seattle says, Mike, I think you should be thinking about that in every single market. And that, to me, Karen, is part of why this is so compelling this week. There are players that are available for selection that can be flipped. They're available for picks. Maybe they're available for prospects. What do you need in your organization right now? If you're Vancouver, if you're Calgary, are you looking at other teams' unprotected lists? calling for on Francis and saying, look, if you can select this player, here's what we would be willing to do on the other side to take this player off of your hands. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Tarasenko, I'm not saying he's a fit in either market, but Vladimir Tarasenko is on the market right now because if Seattle takes him and they eat some money, somebody's going to pay for that. Yeah. Somebody's going to pay good, good asset base for that. Hey, here's, I don't know, first-round pick, multiple picks to take Vladimir Tarasenko at a discounted freight with what he offers on the upside, yeah, somebody's going to pay for that. So Vegas made 11 side deals, Scott, ahead of the expansion draft. I think over under, I'm going to go with under on that with uh, Seattle, and I think I'm going to go heavily under. But they also made five more deals after the fact. Like they flipped Mark Mathod. They flipped a couple other guys after the to get some more picks. They got a couple of first-rounders and a couple of second-rounders in initial deals and side deals. So there are going to come some... There are things that are going to come, and we're going to find them out tomorrow. But it is, to me, it's it's more about which direction does Seattle go with trying to get assets to flip? Like, do they do the five goaltenders? Because goal, there are some teams that need goaltenders out right there right now. Could they do the five goalies and flip some of those, knowing that maybe some teams need some of this and they have deals in place going forward? Or do they go more the defenseman side? Because we know how valuable defensemen can be as commodities moving forward. It's just it. I was very curious to think like which direction would you go if you're Ron Francis? We know nothing from Ron Francis. Like he has been a vault and he is not telling anybody. Remember when they released the Kraken name? And they had said, like, they only told, like, or at least the Kraken, they only told, like, five people or something like that. They kept it very close-knit, and they wanted to make sure that the people that they know didn't leak anything. Like, these are people, they were almost testing them <laughs> when they came to, okay, if you're going to be with our organization, we're going to tell you, but you cannot let this get leaked. It's kind of the same thing of Ron Ron Francis. Like, he doesn't, he didn't let anything out, really, in Carolina, and he is keeping everything so close to the vest right now. I'm really interested to see what we find out tomorrow, because... There are obviously things that are going to happen, but we just actually have no indication what they are. I would not be loading up on goaltenders for trade assets. I'd be loading up on defensemen instead. My personal philosophy, I believe that's what Ron Francis is going to do in this draft, but it's one of the credible theories that's out there. Goalies just, the ones that they're going to select, for the most Mm -hmm. part, 
are not big-time trade assets. They don't generally fetch the same kind of return that defensemen are going to fetch. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I just I heard it out there that it was possibly to get five goaltenders because there are some teams that are looking for some. So do you do that because you can leverage those teams? Scott, do we know how the Kraken are going to fill the farm team? That comes from Sparky. They're sharing their farm team for the first year with the Carolina Hurricanes, is that right? Or the Florida Panthers? One of those two teams? <laughs> I can't, I can't remember. remember which team they're sharing it with, but you're right, it is a share this year. And we've seen teams do this in the past. Vancouver did it as recently mm-hmm. as last season. Yeah, they're going to share the first year and then their Palm Springs the year after that. Once they get their new arena built down there, pretty attractive place for an AHL franchise to set up shop. A lot of transplanted Canadians down there who are yes. snowbirds to help fill smart. that arena as well. Yeah, it's very smart. It's forward thinking and a lot of the things Seattle has done already fall into that category. Yannick Weber retired today. That is not going to cause a whole lot of discussion across the country. It's not, hey, Yannick Weber retired. Let's open up the phone board. But I want to point it out for one reason. Yannick Weber was a good NHL defense. Not great, but he was good. And there was a certain skill set about him that made him good. He wasn't a 1, 2, 3, 4. Yannick Weber was a 5, 6 defenseman in the right spot. And it's the in the right spot I want to focus on. This is a guy who played 499 games. He played mm-hmm. some of those games in Vancouver over the course of three seasons. And when he was in Vancouver, Yannick Weber was viewed as one of those guys, ah, he's not quite good enough. You need to upgrade on that. Here's the reason I want to talk about this. He is the ex- He's an example of so many players in professional sports that if you put them in the right situation and utilize them properly, they mm-hmm. can be effective. We all know how good Nashville's blue line has been for a really long time and some of the big names that have been on it. Well, Yannick Weber, ah, not good enough to be in Vancouver. They need to upgrade on Yannick Weber. Well, he goes to Nashville, and he finds a spot on that blue line. And maybe it's not for 82 games, Karen. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's for 73, the high that he played. Maybe it's 62. But he filled a role as a Mm 6'7 guy on a really good blue line that, if used properly, can be effective. And there are countless examples of these players in the National Hockey League. William Carlson, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's not 43-goal wild bill that's going to do it all the time. But he was put in a different spot when he got to Vegas. Yannick Weber was put in a different spot and insulated the proper way. And sometimes when we talk about change of scenery, that's all it takes. Just somebody viewing you a little differently, somebody being willing to afford you a different opportunity. I mean, I could just point to just Sam Bennett with Florida, right, Scott? I mean, just needed a change of scenery. It was always going to be, you know, 18-year-old Sam Bennett could perform in the playoffs. But then even mentally, he said, or at least Craig Conroy said, you know, when he got to the regular season, there was always this kind of, well, you're not going to play me enough. And so his I'm going to be playing down the lineup and that's just where you see me so that's where he saw himself and when he got to go to Florida he got a different opportunity you know time on the power play playing with some talented players and Anthony Duclair and um and others and he shone down there uh under Joe Quinville so it's all about getting a coach that understands where you fit in the lineup at least in in his mind and and also having some belief in you it also is a flip side as well right like, I think of, you know, like a Blake Coleman or Broccoli Goodrow. They're going to sign some money somewhere. And they're going to sign some deals and they're going to get paid. But they're, but they're getting paid as succeeding in a system where they were third role players. But then now they come to a different team. Do you play them up a little bit in the lineup? Because you think, okay, they can succeed in our team 
in a higher role and then they don't. So it's the flip side too, right? It's like you're in a good situation, but then you get paid somewhere and you're in a situation where you shouldn't be, but, or is it a change of scenery? And sometimes a coach just finds a fit for you and you end up flourishing in that role. Comes back to this question. What are we asking you to do? Why did we sign you? What are we asking you to do? Did we sign you because we think there's untapped potential where you can be further up the lineup? Or did we sign you because we love the role that you play? And I'll equate the Barkley-Goudreau deal to what Brandon Tanev signed for in Pittsburgh. There's a guy who got Mm -hmm. a seven-year, $3.5 million deal, but they didn't ask him to do anything that he wasn't good at. They didn't say, okay, because of this and because we gave you term, we need you to be a top-two line guy. Nope. We're willing to pay you for that and have cost certainty because we think you can be an effective player in the role we are asking you to play. So Barkley Goudreau, if he's asked to play the same role, the same kind of role that he was playing in Tampa Bay, they're fine fine with the cost certainty, and that's how he can be effective. Yeah, you do just find it's like if you're going to give him the guy that much money, it's not it's not a ton of money. I understand that, but it's still a significant chunk of change. And you look at what their roster was last year, and you think, okay, well, do you ask him to do a little bit too much, and then the production is not there because he's being asked to do much in a role that he's not comfortable in? Philip Deneau. Scott, the Roar reports that the Kraken had a deal in place with him. That's been debunked. That's not true. Uh, but the expectation is he won't be back with Montreal next year either. Eric Engels said unlikely he's to resign in Montreal. Third line center. A great shutdown center. You put him on the PK. But does somebody overpay to try and get him to play in a higher role than he did? Or, I mean, he probably thinks he deserves a lot more money than what he's making right now and what Montreal offered him last year. But it's still, it's... A situation where Philip Deneau is a good third-line center, and he you could argue in Montreal for a second, doesn't really matter. Checking center. He goes somewhere for the big box, and because he's getting paid the big box, they expect him to play a little bit higher up in the lineup. Production's not there, and all of a sudden, Philip Deneau is a bust for your team. Okay, some of this has to do with tempering expectations again. If you bring in Philip Deneau and say, look, we are willing to pay you a premium to fill this specific role, which you excelled in in Montreal, we don't need a ton of points. He's going to get you about a half point per game over the course of the year. That's Mm -hmm. what he's been. But that's not what you expect from your second-line center. How do we define those roles? And do we look at a second-line center as the guy who plays the second-most minutes? Mm -hmm. Some of that's on the fan base and education and tempering expectations as well. Jason Dickinson's on his way to Vancouver. The expectation is he's going to be a third-line center. But as you'll hear from this clip... Jason Dickinson is extremely versatile, and in his own mind, he believes he has a little bit more to offer as far as offense goes as well. Vancouver's likely not going to deploy him in that kind of role, but maybe there's a little more than just, hey, I'm strictly out there to check. Have a listen. As much mm-hmm. as we play that, uh, played that defensive style in Dallas, um, we were a four-checking team. Uh, I was a four-checker. That was the main thing we did, and so that fits right into my game perfectly. You know, transition the puck, get it up quickly, and attack right away. So um, it's nothing new to me. It's all I've known, basically. And, um, you know, I can implement more offense, I think, by creating a definite role for myself. That's where I, I see the biggest difference is, um, you know, I, I kind of played the rover role in Dallas. And by no fault of anybody but my own, I guess, is making myself as versatile as possible to them. Um, they just they were able to play me wherever they needed me on a given night. So, you know, some nights I'd show up and I'd be left wing, some nights I'd be right, and some nights I'd be center, never knowing necessarily which line I was going to be on. So I think being able to carve out a definitive role for myself is where I'm going to see the the growth and find chemistry with guys and um, really be able to click right away. 
And obviously, Scott, he was doing whatever he could to stay within the Dallas lineup night in and night out. And if that role was to be a checking line center and on the third line or fourth line, whatever the case was with Dallas, I mean, he did what he had to do. He thought to stay in that in that um, in a nightly lineup. And I understand that. I, I wonder, though, I mean, like he's not coming to Vancouver to add too much offensive <laughs> jump uh, in the lineup. But it's yeah, if he can fill a role where he does have some more point production at a cheaper cost as a third line center and stay healthy rather than Brandon Sutter, then I think it's a win and he can maybe be a helpful asset to this Canucks roster. It's Scott Rento. It's Karen Sermon. Lots of good texts coming in. We'll get back into them, but we want you to hear from one of the highly touted young prospects that will be taken on Friday, maybe by his hometown team. Kent Johnson joins us next on Rintoul and Sermon. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. NHL entry draft goes on Friday. Lots of work to be done between now and then. We know about the expansion draft tomorrow. Could be a flurry of trade activity on Thursday and Friday leading up to the draft. And then a number of young men are going to hear their names called. 32, in fact. Well, I should say 31. It should be 32, but Arizona doesn't have a first-round pick this year. That got stripped away. So 31 again this season, even though Seattle's inclusion should make it 32. It's Rintoul and Sermon, one of the players who will have his name called. And no, I'm not jinxing that. He is that highly rated. It'll (laughs) happen. I just don't know exactly where. He joins us now. He is North Vancouver native. Kent Johnson, who played at Michigan this year and is regarded by most as a top 10 pick in this year's NHL entry draft. Kent, thank you very much for joining the show. Second time we've had you on. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. No problem. How are the skates going? I understand you broke your skates. You need a new pair. <laughs> yeah, I know. They've been uh, going pretty well and this morning. A little bit of a tough, tough bounce there. My skate broke, so I'm just uh, in my car outside of Scott's. Just got a new pair of heat molding, so... Uh, good, I could get that done quickly. Well, we're happy to put that out there into the ether so that teams go, man, this kid's skating so hard and getting ready for next season that he's breaking skates. Like, this kid wants it a little more. Do you want us to spin that for you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. But, uh, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I think I think the skating coach, maybe, maybe she'll like that I'm, I don't know, I'm doing something right then, hopefully. I'm not sure when you first believed you were going to be an NHLer or when you thought you might be a first-round NHL draft pick, but everything we know about the NHL draft has been turned upside down, the virtual draft for again for a second straight year. Where are you going to have your draft gathering, Kent, and who have you invited to spend the day with you? Yeah, just, uh, you know, obviously a lot of family and, uh, and then some close friends. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be really fun and just having that here in Vancouver. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I think it'll be a great day. Again, do you have any nerves, jitters, excitement? Like, what are you feeling right now leading up to Friday? Uh, yeah, definitely probably a bit of all of that. Um, yeah, probably the biggest one is excited. I mean, uh, I think, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, it's pretty fun when I'm talking about it with my friends. I think uh, and my family, we're all pretty excited. So, uh, yeah, I just can't wait. You, depending on who you talk to, you know, there's the potential of going in the top 10. Hometown Vancouver Canucks are at number nine. Have you let yourself at all think that that could be that who's going to call you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying not to go in with, with too much <laughs> expectations of, of going to that team or, or any other for, for that matter. So, uh, yeah, we'll just see how it plays out. I mean, obviously, I think everyone knows I'd be super happy to play for Vancouver, but... Uh, yeah, I just uh, won't let me won't let myself get too locked in on that yet. 
want to take you back a little bit to your previous season at the University of Michigan. Obviously not the first year that you expect going into college with the COVID and the protocols and everything that were in place. How was that experience for you last year playing with Michigan, but also having to do it under all the COVID protocols? Yeah, I mean, it was awesome. Obviously weird year, but I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing is we were just trying to be positive there with our team, and we felt really lucky to, to have the opportunity to get in 26 games there. And, uh, you know, especially, uh, I think, for us freshmen to, you know, get to play those games was huge and uh, get a test of college hockey. I think it will really help us out next year. Ken Johnson expected to go in the top ten in Friday's NHL entry draft. He's going in the first round. You can bet on that. He joins us here today on Rintoul and Sermon, and you are one of a number of Michigan products. They're expected to go very high. Your teammate Owen Power expected to go first overall. Matt Beneers is out there as well. Has it helped being able to use them as sounding boards and share your experiences going through all of this? Yeah, totally. It was uh, super cool during the season. Like normally. Uh we would get the same text or the same emails uh, on the same day. So it was kind of funny, like uh, getting calls from teams the same time and just uh, obviously made it made it more comfortable and easier. So uh, really lucky to have those two. I'm sure when you're going through it, you don't realize the perspective and you probably don't take so much appreciation of the journey. But it wasn't that long ago that you were a very overlooked player too diminutive for most people, 208th overall pick in the WHL draft. I know you went the BCHL route, then you went on to Michigan as well. Take us through the journey from the North Shore Winter Club to where you are today on the precipice of being selected in the first round of the National Hockey League. Take us through some of the big steps for you and what opened some eyes along the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely, yeah, when you put it in that perspective, it's pretty cool to think back, uh, you know, how much I've developed in the last, uh, whatever, five, four or five years. So, uh, yeah, definitely some some uh, inspiring coaches along the way. You know, Jeff Tambellini and Trail, obviously, really helpful and uh, really, really got me ready to play college. And before that, Malko Belkovic and BWC, uh, you know, like he, he really helped me and just inspired me and, and uh, really believed in me a lot, too, so. So, yeah, definitely some great people along the way. And then, obviously, the Michigan staff was, was great this year, too. So, uh, yeah, just uh, really lucky to have some great coaches. So you mentioned former NHLer Jeff Tambellini, who was your coach at Trail, and he was instrumental to your development. How so? Specifically, what did he do with you that helped you become the player you are today? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely there's some, some specific things, but uh, – for me, like it was just every single moment was uh, was so awesome. I mean, it was a really unique situation in that he basically went through everything that I that I went through and was going to go through. So he uh, he was obviously just a great mentor and guy to lean on. You know, talking about uh, playing in the BCHL, adjusting the league as a 16 year old as a younger guy, and then you know we had an exit interview uh, after after our season. He kind of talked about just taking the next step and kind of you know becoming the best player in the league the next year, like he did. So. Um, yeah, it was just uh, really unique and, and really cool how that all worked out getting to play for him. He had you on the wing to start, then he moved you back to center when he felt like that was the next step in your progression. You've played wing at Michigan as well. What do you see yourself long-term as position-wise? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's been really valuable um, getting to play both positions. Uh, obviously, I've played center most of my life, and I definitely think I can, you know, as I get stronger and uh, – more explosive I think I can definitely be a, be a great center in the NHL too but uh, if I go to a team and they want me to play on the wing and they got two great centers for a lot of years like I'm totally fine to play on the wing too I think it's great to play at any position so uh, yeah I, I don't really uh, care too much 
There's a quote from Jeff Tambellini saying, what gets lost when people watch your game or talk about your game is the defensive side of your game. How much pride do you take in working on that part? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, you know, for a guy like me, a skinnier guy and a really skilled guy, uh, a lot of people, you know, just assume I'm bad defensively. And, uh, you know, that kind of sometimes makes me want to prove people wrong and, and try to be good defensively. And obviously, you know, defensively is really important too. It's uh, half the game. So, uh, yeah, I don't, don't want to be a liability ever and something I work on too. What aspect of your game are you going to work on this summer or would you like to improve on this summer? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so far this summer, I think I've improved my skating a lot and got more explosive and just cleaned up some technical stuff. So that's huge. And obviously still trying to get stronger and trying to get my legs bigger. And uh, I think that'll that'll definitely help me uh, make the transition to the NHL at some point. Blowing out skates, you're working on that skating so hard. Kent Johnson joining us here today, <laughs> expected to be in the top 10 on Friday in the NHL Enter Draft. He joins us here on Rintoul and Sermon. Like every young player, you've modeled your game after some pretty big-time NHLers along the way. I know in one of the stories that's out there right now, you talked about Johnny Goudreau maybe being a guy that you thought you might be like. You're a fan of Patrick Kane and Elias Pettersson. Have you thought about the fact, given where those teams currently draft, that pretty soon you might be a teammate of one of those three players? Yeah, I mean, uh, not really. I mean, obviously I thought a bit about, you know, watching the Canucks power play and being like, oh, yeah, It'd be cool to be feeding Pedersen one-timers or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I try not to think about that too much. I mean, there's, it's pretty uncontrollable for me right now uh, whether I end up with those guys or not. So, uh, yeah, if it happens, it'll be really fun and I'll cherish it. But uh, if not, there's a lot of other great players on different teams. What is the binding characteristic in the game of those three guys that I mentioned, Goudreau, Kane, and Pedersen, that you have been attracted to and you try to emulate in your own game, Kent? Uh, probably that they're all just really smart and really skilled. Uh, I mean, none of those guys are, are brute force out there or, or uh, can just, you know, uh, blow guys up or blow people wide, really. So uh, they got to be really smart and really skilled. And I think that was something, especially Goudreau, uh, when I was smaller in Bantam and kind of kind of fell in love with him, is that, yeah, like he just still found a way to, to produce at his size. And, uh, you know, when I was really small there, that, that was something that was really cool to me. And I kind of thought uh, thought I could be like that. Anybody who's looked you up in the last little while is going to say, what do you mean you can't beat guys wide? That's not a big part of your game because they're going to look at one of two goals, and they're probably going to see them both. And one of them is you at Michigan this year beating a player wide after going coast to coast and then going backhand shelf into this minuscule hole. It's an incredible goal. The other goal they're probably going to catch on any of your stories and highlight packs that are out there is this shootout goal that you scored with the Trail Smoke Eaters where mm-hmm. you came in like you were walking and you had one hand on the stick before you just quickly sniped it past the goaltender. Which is your favorite goal? Is it one of those? Is it something outside of one of those? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's hard to say. I pick a favorite, but I think like some of the, I mean, we didn't really get to have uh, too big of a playoff run in Michigan this year. So I think my favorite goals are from the playoffs and trail, honestly, just, I think playoff hockey is just a little bit different and more exciting. So some of those goals were, were probably my favorites. But, yeah, I mean, both those were really, really special goals. I like the shootout one for sure, and it was a big goal to, to get that win at the time. Okay, what's it like sitting back in your dorm room at Michigan watching that goal on Sports Center loop and getting texts from all over North America from your friends and family? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was uh, pretty crazy. I know 
I, I went to bed that night and we had a game the next night. So I was in bed and, and then in the morning kind of, kind of saw more of that stuff and some texts and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely cool, but probably, probably not the best thing to be seeing before a game. Like you probably just want to be focused on your game and not, not a good play you did the last night. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely cool to, to see all that. Okay, so Scott had mentioned one of your teammates and Owen Power is expected to go first overall. We'll have to see what happens on Friday when all things do shake out, but you played this past season with them. What is your scouting de- uh, report on the defenseman? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's awesome. I think uh, he, he deserves to be where he's ranked. And, uh, yeah, he's just, I mean, everyone, I think everyone knows, like, he's such a big guy and can skate really well. And, you know, he's so smart and cerebral and, uh, and then obviously he's got good skill too. Like for a big guy, I mean, he. I was so surprised the first day just seeing him stick handle. I'm like, geez, like he's not supposed to be able to stick handle like that. So, uh, yeah, he's just an awesome all around player and uh, so much fun to play with him. How much did you talk to him about his experience at the World Championships? Yeah, quite a lot. I know uh, I Facetimed him a couple times when he was out there, and uh, and uh, you know when he got back, and uh, yeah, it was definitely cool to see a guy that that I play against and. Uh, you know, be able to do his thing and have so much success with pros and uh, definitely, uh, you know, kind of makes that helps me feel more confident too if, if his game can translate pretty quickly. And uh, yeah, so I think uh, it's definitely exciting. Ken Johnson joining us for a couple more minutes here this morning on Rintoul and Sermon. So the draft process is so different as I referenced off the top here today. What's it been like talking to teams? Have you done a lot of Zooms? Give us an idea behind the curtain of what the lead-up's been like prior to Friday. Yeah, just uh, a ton of Zoom calls with uh, with most of the teams. And, uh, yeah, those are, you know, normally pretty good and enjoyable. They're, they're for the most part, just uh, really nice, uh, good hockey people. So, uh, yeah, it's great to talk to them. You gave the hockey shop a plug a little earlier where you're getting your skates at Scoffs. Maybe how about a plug for the older brother? I know you've got an older brother who plays as well. He went to Yale, perhaps paved the way for you. What has his support and his example meant to you over the years leading up to this moment? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, it's been awesome. He's definitely been, uh, you know, my mentor and role model, and uh, obviously he's a great one at that. So, uh, yeah, I don't definitely don't think I'd be here without him. Who you been skating with this off season? Who you been playing roller hockey with? Yeah, I mean, uh, probably the biggest name would be Connor Bedard. Uh, he's uh, been playing roller hockey and skating with him, so that's obviously really fun. He's uh, he's pretty special. I can't can't wait to see him keep developing. Okay, as a guy who's going to go in the first round on Friday, talking about a guy who's two years away from his draft, what jumps off the page to you about Connor Bedard's game? Yeah, I mean, honestly, everything he is just he's so good like I really do think he can be uh you know a generational talent like a McDavid and uh yeah I mean he just he's he he doesn't have any holes that's for sure and then his shot obviously is probably the biggest thing he's just so smart with it and it's such a hard shot like I've never seen uh goalies just struggle with it so much so it's pretty cool to be out there with them what's in the water in North Vancouver that it's producing top 10 picks all of a sudden in the National Hockey League yeah I don't know it's funny though it's great. Hey, man, I, I guess I just got here too late. Ken, thank you very much for doing this today. We wish you all the best. We're all going to be watching on Friday. Enjoy it with your family. You only get the opportunity once. And thank you very much for making some time here today. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank you. That is Kent Johnson waiting to get himself some skates in Burnaby at the moment <laughs> as he joins us here on Rintoul and Sermon.
you read all of the articles and they're out there. And I know we got a lot of draft nicks among our NHL listeners out mm-hmm. there trying to figure out who goes where. Can my team get this guy? He's an intriguing prospect. He might not be sitting there for Vancouver at number nine. He might not be sitting there for Calgary at what is effectively number 12. But if yeah. you're in either of those fan bases and you do any type of draft research whatsoever, you have probably allowed your mind to go down the man. We could land Kent Johnson road if this happens and that happens along the way i reached out to one of my friends scott who's a uh, junior scout and he said he's insanely skilled very intelligent maybe a little bit too much on the perimeter at times but his hands the creativity the creativity are insane if allowed to be the player he is he'll produce a ton not a team dryer but a high producer he said imagine a lesser version of dry and i'm like hmm, well that's a little different because dry a lot bigger body than kent johnson is but i understand where he's going with that you go down the rabbit hole of looking at his goals and the ones you just mentioned like just the the hands that he has and the the flashiness but you know obviously working on his overall game if he can be allowed to be that player in the nhl i hopefully he'll have a very successful creative nhl season yeah he is career, one of those sorry, guys career, that- season he is one of those guys, Karen, that has the puck on his stick, and it feels like it's on a string. And when you yeah. see different reports from scouts and you see some of the highlights that he produces, he's one of those players that isn't afraid to hold on to the puck, draw defenders to him in order to create a play for one of his teammates or find a creative way to make something happen in the offensive zone. I think it's a good point that you brought up about his defensive game because that's often the label with – young producing offensive players well how do they do at the other end of the ice and there'll be a learning curve it's not as though he's yep. going to just step right into the national hockey league here in the next couple of years and selkie award winner all of a sudden but man he thinks the game so well and we we talk about hockey iq and sports iq all the time he seems to have that in spades yeah, and to be a smaller player in the NHL, and I mean, he did point himself to Johnny Goudreau, and I, I saw <laughs> minor Matt Nabitzford didn't like that comparison, but still, smaller guy, you have to have a good hockey IQ to be able to be successful at that size, and I do think that that's something that he obviously does have. He succeeded wherever he's gone, you know, trail. Michigan had a, what was he, a third on the team in scoring this year, second on the team in scoring. Um, they didn't have a very long season, but still was able to be pretty successful while he was there. So I, I just, I hope it works out. And he seems like a great kid with a great head on his shoulders. So I hope everything works out for him moving forward. And just to be clear with the Johnny Gaudreau reference, that's in an article that's out there at The Athletic right now. Kent Johnson was a late bloomer as far as height goes. Kent Johnson's 6'1". So he's not a diminutive player height-wise mm-hmm. like Johnny Gaudreau, but he didn't get to over five feet really quickly relative to some of his peers. So in the article, and that's what I was referencing, there was a point where he thought, well, maybe I'm going to be a Johnny Gaudreau type of player, but he has grown since then. He referenced it in the interview we just did. He's slight, so that's perhaps where you draw comparisons to a Kane or a Pedersen, guys who are these elite puck handlers but aren't, overly imposing and and Ken Johnson isn't imposing from that standpoint but he's much bigger than Johnny Gaudreau is yeah I should point out nine goals 18 assists uh 27 points in 26 games this season uh first among all draft eligible 18 year old NCAA players in assists and points he also had led the team in power play goals with three sucks how their season ended though eh 
Yeah, they're going to go to the NCAA tournament and obviously COVID positive cases. They decided to just shut it down and that was how they ended their year. You, you got to think for a lot of these guys that went through so much adversity, you know, you go to college to get the college experience. And this year was not the college experience whatsoever that you want to get, but still they got some games in, which are, as he said, were key to him. But going through the adversity of being in all the protocols, only playing that many games and then learning, you know, through the disappointment of not being able to play in the NCAA tournament, you got to think that that's going to just help the these guys going on with all the adversity that they're going to have to face in the NHL. Great story for the University of Michigan, for him, for his teammates as well. You know, Luke Hughes is projected by some as a top mm -hmm. 10 pick as well. He was projected higher up the board prior to this past season. A lot of people still have him in their top 10, just maybe not as high as they did before. He's University of Michigan bound, though he's not there yes. yet. Like, what a year for that university. And Owen Power, I saw some of the stats coming out, and we'll talk about more in depth on Friday when we get into the first mm -hmm. round of the NHL entry draft. Sam Cosentino expected to join us on that day. Saw some of the stats on Owen Power, who's the consensus number one at this point. He'll be the, if taken first overall, as most expect he will be by the Buffalo mm -hmm. Sabres. He'll be the tallest ever first overall pick. He'll be the first player. <laughs> in NHL entry draft history to have won a world championship prior to being drafted in the National Hockey League as well. He got us so much faith at the World Hockey Championship. Like, uh, Gerard Gallant played him in key times, and you could just see his skill level on display. Yeah, there might have been some deficiencies on the defensive side of things, playing against men at the World Championships, but just that experience and having to take that to the NHL level, whether or not he plays next season for Buffalo, and yes, I'm going to say Buffalo. I expect him to go <laughs> to them with uh, Dulling there at some point, be their number one pairing, but I just I think like he's someone... Buffalo's going to get a good player, and whether or not he plays next year, decides to go back and get that full college experience. I mean, good for him. The guys, the players, these kids do deserve to have that experience if that's the route they want to go, or he goes to Buffalo. Uh, obviously, he would play on that roster next year, because have you looked at that roster, Scott? <laughs> Someone said earlier, I'm going to give you a good analysis. It's not very good. Uh, so, hey. Good for him. Good for this. These kids deserve this time, and they deserve the shine. So as soon as we get off the expansion draft, that's when these kids are going to get more of a, a look-see. Late question coming in here to the inbox. Do you guys fear prospects on stacked teams? Ole Ulevi was on a very stacked London Knights team. I find it hard to judge their full potential. I understand what you're talking about, and that's just not in hockey, Karen. We talk about that with programs like Alabama and NCAA Alabama, football. Yeah. Oh, there's so much talent there. If that talent isn't there once the talent is on a level playing field in the National Football League or in the National Hockey League in this case, what does it look like? I'm not sure that's the that's that would cause me to fear a player. Most of these guys have had success somewhere along the way. I mean, we could we could use the opposite as well. Like if a guy racks up a whole bunch of points on a team that's not very good, is it because mm -hmm. there's not a lot of pressure involved yeah. and not playing in big game situations? It, it's so individual. It really is. And again, we're talking about 18-year-old kids in this case. It's so hard to project <laughs> where they're at physically, where they're at mentally, and how long that's going to take to develop, how they handle the pressures of getting a whole bunch of money and now doing this for a full-time job as opposed to something that they've been striving for their whole life. It's so hard to predict. It is, and these kids, uh, and I use them kids, they are kids, they've been through so much in their lives now leading up to this point. I mean, it's kind of like this is this is the route that they've been on, uh, leading them to be uh, 
selected in the NHL interdraft. So I feel they come in with a different head on their shoulders than, you know, draft picks did 20, 10, 15 years ago, whatever the case is. But it's, uh, it's a fun day for these kids. It's life-changing. And it sucks that it has to be, you know, virtual again. But at the same time, too, you get, do get to be surrounded by more friends and family that you love. And you get to, you know, the experience of that and getting the phone call and seeing it. It's on Zoom, which, you know, is what it is. But it's, it's life-changing for these kids. And, and I'm really excited for them. It's a heck of a staring contest going down in the National Hockey League between Mark Bergevin and Ron Francis right now. That's not the only one out there in sports. And we'll get a settlement on that one tomorrow when the Seattle Kraken do their expansion draft. It could be a while before we settle the other one. It's something we will get to in the final hour of the program today. Yes, I promise I will tell the Sunburn story as well. As horribly embarrassing as it is for me, I still can't believe to this day, Karen, that I did it. I'll tell you why next on Rintoul and Sermon. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Sounds like they've got some pretty inventive things lined up for tomorrow down in Seattle. They're going to have fun with the television production. As we mentioned earlier in the program, of course they are. Look who's involved. You got Hollywood involved in this. And you've got ESPN looking to make a bit of a splash here as well. Karen, let's not kid ourselves. The NHL rights have changed hands in the United States. ESPN is all over this coverage. We've seen a little bit. I'm not sure what's supposed to be out there. We've seen a little bit of footage of Kevin Weeks down at Pike Place. One of the fish catchers is grabbing the fish that gets thrown across. And he'll have a name on it. And Maybe it's the least pick. Maybe it's not. I have no idea. But they're going to have some fun with this tomorrow. Oh, Kerfoot going to Seattle is about the thing that's trending right now uh, in Toronto, but also on Twitter. Scott, of course, Alex Kerfoot's name, the leaked video that we saw out there. Yeah, Jerry Bruckheimer. I went down the list of like movies that, you know, big blockbusters that he's been in and you could talk. It's, it's incredible. So it's like, yeah, of course, Jerry Bruckheimer is going to be have this incredible show of lights and who knows what else. And then you got Disney with ESPN trying to make the splash. It's going to be phenomenal made for TV. It's going to be must-see TV. I'm watching. I'm compelled. And we're wondering if you're compelled relative to the NHL entry draft. What are you more excited about this week? You can weigh in online at Scott Rintoul or at Karen underscore Sermon. That's Karen with an E, Sermon with a U and an A. One thing I don't anticipate being a part of the production is a spaceship. But that's trending right now. Jeff Bezos, he's back. Went to space. Oh, good. Made it back. That's always the uh, <laughs> that's always the risk when you're going to space. So Richard Branson went a couple of weeks ago with his Virgin Group, and now Jeff Bezos with his company went to the edge of space. I watched a thing on it yesterday. I believe he's going to be waitlist for a couple of minutes and then return. I think it's six minutes before you start heading back down to space. Not for me, Scott. Why? I don't think. Well, I don't want to die. <laughs> I, I am going to die. I mean, it's it's, it's eventual. It's going to happen. I'm going to die. But I keep thinking the Challenger in my head. Like, I could never get that out of my brain. I don't think if you put me in a spaceship. Tomorrow, maybe not. I'm not saying I'm heading there tomorrow. I've got two young kids, and so there's a little bit of risk assessment involved there. But I'm not ruling that out at some point. That'd be pretty cool, going to space. Are you risk adverse by nature? No, I love risks. I love put me on any roller coaster. Is that risk or is that adrenaline? But put me on That's any adrenaline. roller coaster out there. Like I love that things. I am not necessarily afraid of heights. Like I think I'd be a good on the Amazing Race. You could probably get me to do most things, except if the Amazing Race was to put me in a spaceship and go to space. I just I really have no desire to do it. And because of the fact, again, spaceship exploding when it takes off from Cape Canaveral in Florida. 
kind of puts a little bit of a sour note on it. Sure, that's a long time ago, however. Where do you draw <laughs> is, is space where you draw the line, or do you draw the line before that? Like, are you into skydiving? Is that a risk you'd be willing to take? I'd do skydiving, I think. Yeah, I could do that one. So I want to do bungee jumping. You I wouldn't do, do bungee, bungee jumping? Jump. Or you do no, want to do would. it? Well, which would, would you sign up for it. first? If someone give you the option, hey, we got a free pass, you can go skydive or you can go bungee jump. What are you doing first? Bungee jumping. Why? Because at least I'm secured to something versus skydiving you're a little less more more of a free flow i don't know i would just i think probably bungee jumping is a little more realistic as well so i think i'd go with that one skydiving for me i've been skydiving but i would do it again before bungee jumping i'm not afraid of bungee jumping but longer free fall more of a rush lengthier trip i'm into that first <laughs> would you go to space as i said i'm like, not I know you said it with out. kids I'm not ruling it out. I wouldn't do it tomorrow, but I'm not ruling that out. I think it would be pretty awesome. I mean, it'd be a good, hopefully, good view. I don't know if it's just dark what you see. Like, I have no idea what the view was. I didn't. I haven't gone and like listened to any clips of Jeff Bezos and what he saw. But uh, it just—it's not on like the list of things I'd be wanting to do right now. I'd be more afraid of all the G's that you have to pull on the way, and like what effect that would have on me, and like. Your brain getting rattled around and, and potentially maybe puking. I don't know if they can smooth out the travel on that sucker at some point in time. I think I'd be more afraid of that or, or more apprehensive of that. Afraid is the wrong word. More apprehensive of that than, hey, I'm not sure I'm going to make it back here alive. Fair enough. But you equate space travel with death, apparently. I do. <laughs> Have you not seen the, I don't know if it's on Netflix or Crave or Prime, whatever the streaming services is, but there's a really good documentary that came out. I think it's Netflix. I think it's four part. And it's just... It was heartbreaking to see and like to see the people that saw it live that went there to go see it and the teacher, you know, the excitement of sending her to space as well. I just don't know if I could get that out of my brain. I was alive during the time. I remember it actually happening. I have not watched the documentary, but yes, it was a tragic event in what was supposed to be space travel. It's Rintoul and Sermon. Want to get back to talking sports here. We've talked a lot about Mark Bergevin, Ron Francis, Carey Price, who does what. Do you have a guess at who blinks here? There are people that think Bergevin is kind of bluffing. There oh. are people that think Francis is saying that there is interest in carry price simply to drive up some type of price, whatever it might be in terms of compensation to stay away from carry price because ultimately Mark Bergevin, when push comes to shove, doesn't want to lose him. Who blinks here? I think if this is the way you mean it, I think it is Ron Francis. I would... Probably if I had to bet on it, I'm with you, Scott. I think Carey Price is a Montreal Canadian tomorrow. I think uh, Mark Bergevin is calling his bluff, and I think Ron Francis is going to look at it and think, well, if the injury concerns are right, then we don't want that. We don't want the cap hit. We've always said, he said, cap flexibility is our biggest asset in this draft. So if you're going to take him at his word on that one, I'm going to think that he's going to take a hard pass on Carey Price. It's a real change-up. And I believe, as I said earlier, that, that Carey Price is a Montreal Canadian tomorrow. I just don't know if there's any price to be paid to make it happen when it comes down to the wire. And that's really what this is about, isn't it? This is about a staring contest. Like, mm -hmm. Bergevin, yeah, okay. He's envisioning a world where something happens and he's got $10.5 million of cap space to spend on other assets. He can envision that world, and maybe it's over $18 million because Shea Weber doesn't play next season, and there's a little cap space. <laughs> he might not ever play again. Like, Mark Bergevin might be spending a whole lot more money out there than we ever anticipated.
But there's also a world that he's comfortable with, with Carey Price and what he's meant to that franchise. The real question, does he have to pay? Or does Ron Francis say, okay, you dared me to do it. We're going to change course here. We had a plan going in, but one mm -hmm. of the other things, we talked about financial flexibility. We have to have flexibility of thought. We've talked a lot about Vegas, all right, because that's our most recent reference point in an expansion draft. Vegas had flexibility of thought during the course of its first season. It had it beforehand as well. They did things that nobody anticipated them to do going into the expansion draft. It set the table for what is a much more pragmatic approach from GMs this time around. We haven't seen the side mm -hmm. deals beforehand. We haven't seen GMs fall all over themselves trying to protect a particular asset. Julian Breezebois maybe at the top of the list. Yeah, we're going to lose a good player. That sucks, but we're only losing one. We're not going to pay you more just to steer you away from one thing in particular. Vegas had flexibility of thought. Then they had flexibility of thought when they were better than they thought they were going to be. In Seattle, does flexibility of thought allow them to deviate from that financial flexibility plan when it comes to carry price? That's the real question here. I mean, you do, obviously you do look at it, Scott, like you have to. If there's a name Carey Price is out there, you think about it for hockey purposes, you have to think about it for what he can mean to this franchise, like Marc-Andre Fleury meant to the Vegas Golden Knights franchise. You have to have a conversation about it. But Mike McKenna pointed it out, and also I've seen it pointed out there, I think it was on the 31 Thoughts podcast when Friedman and Merrick were talking about this. Like, they were very analytical-driven organization as well seattle right like and if you're analytically analytically driven and you look at where Carey price has gone over the last couple of seasons and where his trends may be as he goes to the age of 39 you're probably going to say with a 10.5 million dollar cap hit like i'm not willing to take this the risk is just too much because the value at the end of the contract it's going to be an albatross for us and it's going to affect us in year five of being at that point hopefully a franchise that's just, i don't know a stanley cup contending team at that point for them so i i get the conversations i just i think for seattle it's a bluff they're seeing what else they can get out of it and i do think for mark bergevin like he'll be okay one way or the other like for him it doesn't matter you had a plan going forward carry price jake allen so then you've got a plan with ten and a half million dollars off your cap it possibly 18 if shea weber goes in ltir like i just think for mark bergevin it's it's a it can be a win-win in either situation for him we're going to talk about it a lot more tomorrow as well. It'll be the day of the expansion draft. And yep, we'll head down to Seattle in the next couple of days. And there's going to be the follow-up. There's going to be the predictions. We can maybe rank what our biggest questions are about. I, Carey Price is at the top of the list. I don't think there's any issue with that. I think most people agree. Although some are pretty convicted. We just got a text in from Dave saying there's no chance he gets taken. Bergevin wants Francis to take Price. As a Habs fan, I hope he goes to Seattle says Dave in Richmond. Dave just doesn't believe there's any chance that Francis deviates from that financial flexibility plan. Yeah, and I, I get why Habs fans want him to take it. Like, you think about where that... It's, it's all about the money, Scott, and the, and the flat cap. Like, if you are an NHL team and some GMs believe that there's going to be a flat cap for the next five years, you get $10.5 million off your books for the next ten year, or for next five years. Can you imagine what flexibility that gives you as Mark Bergevin to better your team? And you've got Jake Allen, who's younger, at a lesser cap hit. You can find a backup, or you bring Caden, Caden Primo if you believe that he can come in and fill that role as a backup or be a tandem with Jake Allen next year. Like, it just gives you so much more money to deal with that you didn't think you were going to have to have going forward so i think if you're mark bergman you think okay well if i've got him i was going to have him anyways if i don't have him well it gives me a lot more room to do a lot more things that i want to do with this team 
It's Dave versus Dave. Dave in East Bend says, you guys can't see the trees through the forest. Price's wife is from Washington State. He'll be coming home with his wife, and Bergevin will put Weber on LTIR. It will be big game hunting. So Dave in Richmond, Dave in East Bend, maybe you guys want to make a side bet. Maybe you guys want to make a side deal of your own in advance of tomorrow. Scott and so Surrey, why in the world would yep. Seattle take Price? No way they get on that crazy contract. All the nego- All's a negotiating tactic by Francis. Well, the answer to your question, Scott and Sosuri, and why it's at least being considered is because of what Carey Price is. He's a guy who just backstopped his team to the Stanley Cup. He is an elite goaltender. And you may not think that's worth the price tag. Many people out there agree with you. But he's good enough that you have to consider it. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Hey, in Montreal, Habs fans, I was listening to Eric Engels on Tim and Friends yesterday, Scott, and he said, like, people are split. But to say that people are split about a franchise goaltender that's been there through thick and thin, you thought you were gonna, he was going to retire a Hab, 50% of them are okay with he walks away. So it just shows you what cap flexibility means in a flat cap era. It's Rintoul, it's Sermon. I mentioned that's not the only staring contest going on. Another report about Aaron Rodgers, and it's the guy who's been <laughs> at the forefront of those reports, Adam Schefter, who put it out there today. Adam Schefter who's, is the guy who broke this story on draft day. That Aaron Rodgers was done with Green Bay, wanted out, doesn't intend to play there ever again. Mm-hmm. The latest from Adam Schefter today is this, that Aaron Rodgers turned down a contract extension because there's some people who thought this was just about money, use the leverage when you can, and that Aaron Rodgers was angling for a better contract. Aaron Rodgers, according to Adam Schefter, turned down a contract extension that would have been Tied to Green Bay for five more years, so you're going to be in Green Bay beyond the end of this contract that you have right now. In fact, you'll be here for the next half decade, and we will make you the highest-paid quarterback, the highest-paid player, in fact, in the National Football League. And Aaron Rodgers said, nope, no, not you. about that. You want to talk staring contests? This is a staring contest. Unlike the Mark Bergevin, Ron Francis one, we're not going to get an answer anytime soon. We're not. Uh, This one seems to be going down, and it's going to be Aaron Rodgers, I think, who doesn't blink first, Scott. If the enticement of being a Green Bay Packer for life, being the highest-paid player over the likes of Patrick Mahomes, and that doesn't doesn't make you want to sign on the dotted line, it's more than that for Aaron Rodgers. It must be nice to have that much money and not have to be the highest-paid player in the NFL, but it goes deeper for Aaron Rodgers. It's about pride it's about being slighted he feels by the organization that he's given his entire career and basically uh prime years of his life to so i understand i think the green bay packers are going to have to blink i don't know where you are in this but i think at this point it's pretty obvious that aaron Rodgers won't and you need to recoup some sort of assets for him well here's the thing i know aaron Rodgers is stubborn enough to sit for a while i just don't know if he's stubborn enough to sit for the whole thing Maybe he is, and we've talked about this before, Karen. Carson Palmer said, okay, I'm done. I won't do it. I'm out. And so Carson Palmer was willing to bench himself. That's really what's at the heart of this. Is Aaron Rodgers willing to give up football? At least in the short term, at least for a while. Is Aaron Rodgers willing to have the ball taken away from him or hand the ball back and say, I'm okay without it? And we've all talked about Jeopardy and those sorts of things. Jeopardy can wait if it has to because you can host Jeopardy well into your life. Football, you can't play forever. Tom Brady's trying to defy that, but at some point, Father Time's coming calling for even him. 
This is a big year of Aaron Rodgers' football existence. And, yes, it's already a Hall of Fame career, but that's one last shot at a Super Bowl if he doesn't play. It's one last shot at cementing his place among the all-time greats. What does that mean to him? None of us have the true answer to that. Green Bay, on the other hand, they've got a backup plan, and it's not the one they want to roll with, which is Jordan Love. But at least they've got a backup plan. Like the one thing that will happen on opening day, Green Bay is going to play. We don't know about Aaron mm-hmm. Rodgers. But 10 years from now, Green Bay is still going to be going. Aaron Rodgers likely won't be. What's that worth to him? What's a year of your life, a year of your career, if it ends up being that? 37 years old, that could be a lot in terms of years for your career, Scott, because we don't know how many years he has left. Yes, he won the MVP last year, and yes, he obviously keeps himself in very good shape, but I do think that you take a year off from football at that age and not get hit. Maybe it helps you <laughs> have a couple more years after that, Scott, but obviously he barely, he doesn't have that much longer left. Um, this comes in, money can't solve unhappiness. Rogers is done in Green Bay. That's from Donkey the Roofer. Mark in Calgary says, looks like the Rams now need a quarterback close to home for Rogers' thoughts. Just to point out, the that's the Cam Akers injury. That's a running back. So the LA Rams are now in need of a running back, not so much a quarterback. They have theirs in Matthew Stafford. That's just a a correction on that one. But, Scott, I just don't see – I think his conviction level is just too strong. I honestly do. And he's willing to say, hey – I mean, he isn't willing to say he's going to retire yet. That's a different thing. But he's willing to say, I'm going to sit out. I'm going to call your bluff because I just don't want to be part of anything to do with your organization again. You slighted me. I'm not coming back. What does the board, what does the ultimate power in Graham Bay have to say? Because if they back management here, this is tough to wade through in the short term, but this is also about setting a precedent that you're not going to get pushed around by one particular player in the league. That's what it's about for Green Bay. You know, somebody just texted in, not so much a staring contest as it is the Packers bringing a toothpick to a sword fight. They've misread the situation for years, haven't built around him. No amount of money for him is going to change the lack of a team to win with. Well, they were maybe a fourth down conversion away from going to the Super Bowl. It's not as though they haven't been able to win. And we can go a few years back on what happened in the NFC Championship game against Seattle. And they've been in back-to-back NFC Championships. It's not as though they can't win in Green Bay. It's not as though they were so obviously outclassed. They've been close, just not close enough. There's a distrust with management here. Yeah. If I know, And Green Bay is a differently owned team than, than others we talk about. But if the ultimate power brokers in Green Bay back management here, because the, the obvious solution is this, get rid of your manager. Like, get rid of your GM. But that hasn't happened yet, because that's where this seems to be at. Aaron Rodgers saying, I can't work with you. It's not about the players on this team. It's not about Jordan Love. I can't work with you anymore because there have been some things out there that you were supposed to close on. You didn't get there. You told me we'd do this. We never got there. So I need to go elsewhere. But if the power brokers in Green Bay have the back of the management, what do you do if you're Aaron Rodgers? You don't play. I just I don't see a scenario, Scott, where he's going to willing to mend fences with this organization. I honestly don't. I just is if you're not going to mend fences and take the offer of being the highest paid player in the NFL, they're going to give you that um, notoriety, and you get to say I'm the highest paid player. Like he doesn't need the money. He obviously doesn't want the money. It's it's about more than that. If you're Aaron Rodgers, you say you know what, like you know, for a better use of words, like screw you, I'm not coming back. I'm sorry. 
Like, I just don't see a scenario where he ever comes back and they can mend fences. He just feels he has been slighted so much by this organization, and it could come down to just the one thing of drafting Jordan Love and them not talking to him about it. But even if it's more than that, it's just uh, Aaron Rodgers, I don't want to play for Green Bay. And the question be- then becomes, is it an either-or? Is it I think either so. you get rid of me or... Because oh, Karen, sorry, what, for, for Green Bay, you mean? For Green Bay. For, for both of them, quite frankly. The, so is does the decision become, well, it's either this way or this way, or is there a meeting in the middle? Because I've heard some pretty logical minds out there say, look, the most logical thing to do here is promise Rodgers, like put it down in writing if you have to, that you'll trade him after this season, but you need him for one more year, and then we'll move you to where you want to go. You can give us some time to work with that. And you play one more year in Green Bay. Does Rodgers buckle at all if that's the scenario? Hey, you're going to get what you want. You just can't have it as soon as you would like. I just think he's so disgruntled that he's just not willing to even sign on the dotted line, Scott. Like, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I just think if you're Green Bay and you can get some sort of assets in return, and teams are going to lowball you because they know where Aaron Rodgers sits on this. Like, if he's not willing to sign that contract extension that they gave him, you know that he wants out of Green Bay and you can go in with whatever low cost. But at this point, is it about just recouping some sort of assets for a player that's made it pretty evident he doesn't want to play there? That's where the pressure comes in. That'll, that'll be the pressure from the fan base, and I don't know exactly where the fan base is on this. The last thing that fan base wants is to lose this franchise quarterback who just came off an MVP season and think that it's going into the remix with Jordan Love. That's the last thing the fan base wants because it's been this close to getting to a Super Bowl the last couple of years. At the same time, they're probably disgruntled, and if it does get to the point you're talking about, there's a lot of public pressure on management to get something and improve the team somehow with draft picks, with young players, whatever it happens to be, and eventually move on. Bob in Nanaimo says, I think you're super wrong about Jeopardy. If he has the chance to be the next permanent host, that's literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When's the next chance going to come around when Rodgers is 70? It's bigger than football, believe it or not. Bob, you might view it as a bigger opportunity. I just don't know Aaron Rodgers views it as a bigger opportunity. Everybody's priority list is different. Like, yes, you can make a very good case that being the host of Jeopardy is bigger than being a star NFL quarterback. I can tell you this. He's not going to get the same juice from that that he gets from playing football. He's not. And maybe maybe Aaron Rodgers, Karen, is diverse enough in his interests that that's okay, that he can say, I've got enough of the adrenaline out of football, and I've got enough of the competition out of football. I want to take on a new challenge. But most people who leave a competitive sport where they have been at the pinnacle, and Aaron Rodgers has been there from a team standpoint, he's been there from an individual standpoint on multiple occasions. They often say, you can't replicate it. You just can't, and that's where my truest passion lies. I see where you're going with that. I just wonder if Aaron Rodgers is just different in his thinking. Like, he's engaged, he's about to be married, he's seen what life after football could be. If you're so disgruntled, do you think, okay, well, I've won my one Super Bowl, I just came off an MVP career, yeah, I have something left, but I don't want to play for this organization, so I'm actually willing to step away from football and not play again because I have something set up for the future. I just wonder if he's a little... No, and I just wonder if he's a little bit different in his thinking like the competitive juices he's fulfilled them can i get some sort of thrill of being on television and seeing other people win at a game that i'm hosting maybe that's enough for him maybe he's willing to just you know ride off into the sunset and live a 
I'd say a quieter life, but a less harmful life to his body. And he said, you know what? I've been there, done that. It's time to walk away. We've seen dudes do it with far less opportunity. Barry Sanders is top of mind for Mm -hmm. me, a guy who said, that's it. I'm done. Robert Smith walked away. There have been multiple. They aren't quarterback. They aren't the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. I don't know when this sucker gets decided, but we're a ways off. I feel like this is going to go deep into the summer, if not into the fall, with Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. It was a pretty compelling role-playing last week on the Chris Collinsworth podcast. He had Adam Schefter on, and the two of them went back and forth. Schefter played the part of Rodgers. Collinsworth played the part of the Packers. And, well... I'm not going to play. Okay, well, that's fine. We're not going to let you play. If you're not playing for us, you're not playing for It was pretty funny to hear them go back and forth, and eventually they got nowhere, which is where these two sides find themselves right now. (laughs) It's kind of like where we are, Scott. We're trying to figure out which way is Aaron Rodgers thinking, and only Aaron Rodgers know and the Green Bay Packers know. We do know this. Camps are opening. We've got rookies, some rookies reporting today. We've got most camps opening a week from now, Scott. I do wonder if Green Bay is like... I don't want this to be a story for, you know, the for all of camp plus September plus October up until the trade deadline and possible things. Like, I do just wonder if Green Bay just says, we got to make a decision either way. Say, we're not trading him. You can retire. Or they say, look, we don't want this to be a story. Let's trade him, recoup what we can, and move on. It's going to be a while. I think this is going to be a while, Karen. It's Rintoul and Sermon. Notes and quotes still on the way. Keep those texts coming in. We're getting flooded with them right now. We'll dive into some of those, and yeah, I promised the sunburn story, so I will get to it in the final segment of the show today on Rintoul and Sermon. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. So I know that Greg's playing that because of our space discussion a little earlier. Yes. But it's the first line that caused me to chuckle, because when Greg told me the sunburn story yesterday, and we didn't get a chance to put it on the air yesterday, we put it on the air today, and he's in some pain, and I'm not trying to chuckle at his situation because Karen, I've been there many times with a bad sunburn. As you can imagine, you see my complexion. Yep. Yeah. Redhead happens. Yeah. But the first line, I think it's going to be a long, long time. One of the things I said to Greg yesterday is you're in the spot with a sunburn that people get to when they over drink. And most people who have drank alcohol before at some point have gotten to a place on the very bad side of a horrible night or a horrible hangover where, what do they say, Karen? I'm never drinking again. You know what? I'm never drinking again. It might be the first time they consume alcohol and they overindulge. It might be later on and they feel the worst they felt in their life or so they think. And they say that. And then, I don't know, seven days later, there they are again. Well, I'm not going to drink as much as I did last week, but I'll, I'll have a couple here tonight. <laughs> Yeah, it, uh, that happens. Uh, alcohol is involved in my one really bad sunburn. I went to Mexico a couple of years ago. Uh, before you tell your story, because you've built yours up, so it's probably way better than mine. Is, but it's way it's, worse, is what I'm telling you. You know when you go to Mexico and you get off the plane and they give you cocktails as you're checking in and it's all inclusive, so you go a little hard early and you're at the pool, right? Like sunshine, it's beautiful. And then you end up spending a lot of time in the pool. Well, you can still drink because it's a swim bar and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's where my, I've been burnt once really bad in my life because I tan. I have, I'm lucky to have skin color where I basically just go brown instead of uh, uh, red, which is very nice. But <laughs> woke up the next morning after the first uh, day, night in Mexico. Uh, first of all, I think I was in bed at about six o'clock at night, but still. I was so burnt on my one side, just one side. You could sit, You could tell how I was standing facing the sun in Mexico because it was just my right side and my right shoulder. So like I'm I'm wearing dresses or whatever tops, but my left side's fine. My right side, it's like burnt to a crisp. And I still drank the alcohol the next day, but I was a lot more uh, prevalent with reapplying the sunscreen. And I went to 
this this is one wasn't the story I was going to tell, but since you bring it up, I went to Mexico many, many, many years ago, a couple of girlfriends ago, a few girlfriends ago <laughs> with my girlfriend at the time. And yeah. we went down there, and the sun's a lot more intense than it is here in mm-hmm. Canada. And because I'm a redhead, of course, I was applying sunscreen. She wasn't. I said, you should probably put some of this on. She said, I tan. I'm fine. I've been to Hawaii. This is okay. <laughs> she got burnt so badly that when we were walking through town in the Mexican place we were staying, we were in Puerto Vallarta, people from cars were yelling, Solar Cane! Like they were yelling at her. <laughs> That's how badly burnt she was. Oh, the poor girl. I felt terribly for her. And maybe that gets to a text that we received here that maybe we will get to a little bit later on. Okay, the sunburn story. All right. So here's the deal, Karen. I've been burnt in almost every place. Not there, but (laughs) almost every place. So the sunburn story is not going there. I've never been the, I guess, suntan equivalent of a skinny dipper. I've never been that. When I was 17 years old, I got this dumb idea in my head, and I don't even know where it came from. But we were going to the beach one day. I used to work in the eastern side of BC. A lot of people in both of our listenerships will be familiar with Radium Hot Springs in Vermeer, Mm -hmm. Windermere Lake. So we were going to the beach one day, and I got it in my head. (laughs) My favorite hockey player at the time was Brett Hull. Now, I'm going okay. to take a lot of flack for that in the inbox. Hey, I just really liked Brett Hall. He's my favorite player, elite sniper, all of those things, Hall of Famer. He was my favorite player growing up. So I decide for whatever reason, I don't know where the inspiration struck, that I was going to take sunscreen and I was going to write the word Hull on my chest and then the <laughs> number 16 right below it on my stomach. And then I was going to lay outside and that's what was going to show up there because that would be smart, right? And uh, how, how bad can it be? That would be kind of funny. That's my favorite player. Double down on it. Said to my brother, do the same thing on my back. Write Hull 16 there. I spent the entire day in the sun. And I thought, well, I can't even see it. Like nothing's really happening there. Karen, I couldn't sleep. That night, I couldn't lay down. I was so badly sunburnt, and this was so vividly imprinted on my chest and on my back that when I showed up for high school football camp two months later, it was there for everybody to see when we were getting dressed in the locker room. It remained there for four or five months. I thought it was never going to go away. The sunburn was bad enough, and that week was bad enough. The pain I was in, I was working at the time, my summer job, and I was trying to get through that so I could make a little bit of money and save it up. That was hard enough. Not being able to sleep was hard enough. Not being able to lay down. Couldn't go in the shower like cold water, hot water. didn't seem to matter. Everything Everything hurt this. But then I had a reminder of it day after day after day after day after day, and it's one of the most embarrassing and stupid things that I've ever done in my life. You tattooed How yourself, much? Scotty. You tattooed yourself. Yeah, I did. Yes, you did. <laughs> I did. The, oh, man. Branded was I, more like it, Greg. I branded yes. myself. The big thing when I was in my 20s was, uh, this is, is you would take the, you'd suntan like the tattoos on you. And I know, like, the Playboy Bunny little tattoo was a very common thing with females back when I was in my 20s. So that was a thing. You put it on you, and you were able to suntan yourself and give yourself a tattoo that way. Um, Hull 16, though, on both sides of your chest and back, how much heckling did you take from fo- at oh, football camp? 
I took a lot. <laughs> yeah, I took a lot of heckling there. It didn't stop, didn't die down for days. Like the joke never got old. It didn't matter. You could revisit it three weeks from the first time you made the joke because guess what? Every time I took off my shirt to change into my undershirt and football equipment, there it was All for everybody to see just sides. how damn stupid I was. Lee Pater C says, my sunburn made it impossible to sit for a week, says Leaf Hater Steve. This then one he goes on in. to say, though, yeah, one and done ahead. on Wreck Beach. Oh, one yeah. and well, done on Wreck Beach, Scott. And for those who don't know what Wreck Beach is, that is a place where you're doffing all of the clothes, and, and that's how you're doing the suntan. This one comes in, and Karen, it doesn't say whether or not Nude sunbathing was involved, but this one comes in. Back in the day, I was on a beach. I met a beautiful girl. We hung out all day drinking. One thing led to another. She invited me back to her place, and one thing was leading to another, but we both realized we were red like lobsters, and the last (laughs) thing you wanted to do was to have someone touch you. It was agony for me. This was supposed to go the right way. There's a beautiful girl there, and neither of us want to at that point touch each other that's a bad story like that that's probably worse than mine because again you're gonna have the sunburn and yes extreme pain on both sides yeah yeah we will leave it there so that's my sunburn story greg i hope that makes you feel a little bit better back at mission control that your sunburn story is nowhere near as bad as the one i just i just laid out for it it helps but i'm not gonna laugh at you anymore scotty i i I feel your pain uh, but it, yeah, I, I don't think it was as bad as having a word branded on my chest. I, I didn't go that far. Sean well, from Waterloo says, say- says I could have gone out and played shirts versus skins and I already had my jersey on. Yeah, it's true, Sean. That's absolutely true. You got him to sign it. <laughs> what a clown. What a clown. Sign it in sunscreen. Oh, just so dumb. <laughs> I'm shaking my head here years later at the regret. Let's get to notes and quotes. <laughs> Who's in the top six? Getting pucks out, getting pucks deep. Who's in the crease? Really none of your business. And who's in the press box? It's time for Notes and Quotes. Karen, let's get to the NBA final, which goes tonight. Could be the final game. I know it's the NBA Mm -hmm. finals. Jamie and I touched on this briefly yesterday. We talked to Dieter Kurtenbach about this a couple of hours ago. Another big statement game from the Bucks on the weekend. Giannis was very good. Drew Holiday has the steal that leads to maybe the defining play of the NBA mm-hmm. Finals. Three straight wins for the Bucks. Do they close things out tonight? Uh, I'm hoping not. I'm hoping for a Game 7, Scott, just to prolong this for one more game. Uh, I mean, hey, I can't... If Giannis Antetokounmpo lifts the NBA trophy tonight, the Larry O'Brien trophy, and the Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Kudos to them because the way that they started this series down 0-2, Phoenix looked to be pretty decently in control. There were questions about Giannis's health. There were questions about Drew Holiday, about Chris Middleton. I mean, there were questions about their head coach. Would he be uh, the head coach if they didn't uh, get this far and win the NBA title? So I would be happy for them to win it on home court but I would like to to go to Game 7, Scott, because I do still, and I'm going to go with my pre-series pick of the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, I'm sticking with the Milwaukee Bucks here. I've been cheering for them all along, not this adamant Bucks fan. I just kind of was drawn to the Bucks. I felt stronger about that as this series is going. Look, normally I root for Game 7. Normally I root for the great story. In this case, I'm actually not, Karen. I'll be happy if we get a Game 7 just for the NBA fan of me. And to Dieter's point, and we've talked about this, that 
people are missing a great series. I don't believe the average person, mm-hmm. certainly in our listenership, is tuning into this. But those who have had have been treated to some really good basketball, a lot of great drama in this series as well. For that market, I would like them to be able to win it at home. I really would. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with it being a small market team here, Karen. You've watched everything. Why can't I think of what it's called? Deer District? Yeah, that's it. Deer District yes. is where they gather. It's kind of the equivalent of Jurassic Park that they've had in Milwaukee. For the Deer District and everybody there to have a really good time with this and for something good to happen for that franchise, I would like them to be able to win it at home here tonight. And honestly, is there a superstar in the NBA that you would cheer for more than Giannis Antetokounmpo lifting it. And I mean that with his personality and where he came from and where he's gotten to and the fact he decided to stay in Milwaukee just validates his decision to stay there and build a winning franchise. And the guy is so humble. I would just, I'd be okay with him winning the trophy. Even just the way he said tinkle last week when he was talking about why Greg, he do you have that? the first quarter. We don't have it available for us right now, but you know what? We do have Giannis talking about getting himself to this point over the course of his NBA career and some of the past failures that have helped him along the way. He helped me, uh, my children grow and become more mentally tough. And, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. This is a playoff game. You know, everything can happen. Like, you know, I remember in the Instagram songs, we were up 2-0. And last four straight, you know, and um, I was trying, I'm trying to think what was the mindset of the other team, you know, leaving Milwaukee down to O, and now they're thinking they got to go back home, protect home court, and, you know, then come back here, get one, and then, you know, I'm just, you know, trying to think what they did, you know, and try to learn from, you know, our mistakes and our failures. And when you look at this Bucks team, Scott, and like he said, he learned from being down for or being up on the Raptors to nothing and then blowing four straight games. Like the Bucks are seeking their first championship 50 years, but they're also, they would be just the second team in NBA history to overcome multiple 2-0 deficits in a single postseason. The Bucks uh, also came, overcame that against the Nets. And I think with that loss to the Raptors, it just shows resiliency. And it shows you don't have to panic if you're up 0-2 or down 0-2. You know, there's a lot of time left in the series, and that's what the Bucks have shown. Down nope. 0-2, it's okay. We're going back home. Well, no time panic left. here, Karen. As you mentioned, I apologize for stepping on your words that's there okay. at the end. No panic is really what has defined Giannis and this Bucks team from even before the playoffs started. Remember when we looked at his comments and we played them for you on air and said, this isn't what your fans want to hear. It doesn't sound terribly confident. I understand why people mm-hmm. are, are making a lot of this. Giannis basically said before the players, I don't know that it's going to be different this year. Like, I'm not going to sit here and give you a guarantee that it's going to be different. Here's why I think it's going to be more successful. But I can't tell you, yeah, definitively it's going to be better. And it's that calm that he had then and that really measured approach that has served him and this team terribly well. We always talk about these fine margins like Mark Bergevin. Are they getting rid of the GM in Montreal? They might not make the playoffs. Dominique Ducharme, will he ever have the interim tag removed? They're down 3-1. Look like they're done against the Leafs and all of a sudden Bergevin is up for GM of the year. Ducharme's got himself a three-year deal. Montreal is being hailed in the streets. Milwaukee, ah, they are they going to blow up this team? Is Budenholzer, Budenholzer mm-hmm. getting fired and now everything's okay? 
It is. And I mean, like, how much flack did Drew Holiday take in that trade? They brought him in with the Eric Bledsoe trade from New Orleans. He was supposed to be an upgrade, but he had underperformed, at least to the expectations of the fans. And he's shown up big. And Chris Middleton, like, this has been a coming out party for him. No, they're not superstars, those two, but they're big names that needed to show up to get Giannis over the hump. And Phoenix, we could talk about all their deficiencies, and Chris Paul needs to show up tonight, Scott. Like, he has not had more than 22 points in since game two or the first two games of this series. Like, I need to see more from him. How healthy is him? Devin Booker's been doing his thing, but the Suns have no depth. Like, it just... There's a lot of storylines story going around this series, and yes, I'd love to see Chris Paul, but I would not be disappointed for Giannis to lift it tonight at home in front of those home crowd because there's nothing worse than winning the title in the away team's arena because just it's just not the same, right? Just to celebrate it in your home crowds, it's just so much better. I mean, if they do win it on the road in Game 7, then at least you get They'll to... They'll be happy. <laughs> he used to facepalm the guy who said Suns in four, but I digress. Ryan Ellis moved this week from Nashville to Philadelphia, that three-team trade that ultimately culminated with him ending up there and Cody Glass joining Philip Myers in Nashville and now Nolan Patrick in Vegas. Ryan Ellis spoke to the Philadelphia media for the first time today. A little bit shocked to be trade, but talked about where he's at in his career. At this point in my career, all I want to do is win. Um, and this organization's got a, a winning standard and um, expectations to do so. So for me, I'm, I'm going to try and play my game and help the team out any way I can um, going forward. And if that's scoring goals or stopping goals, um, doing both, whatever it takes to, to help this team win. Karen, there's a lot of activity still to come in the NHL offseason. I had mm-hmm. Philadelphia on my list of teams that will define the offseason. I feel like they're not done yet. This was a significant move, but I feel like there's more to come from the Flyers. We know that Chuck Fletcher wanted to make more moves after last offseason, and whether it was the flat cap or the fact that he just ran out of time, they didn't really get a lot done. This was a big one. I mean, you successfully go out and you get a top-pairing right-handed defender with leadership capabilities. I mean, Scott, could you ask for anything more? I mean, Philly just did what everybody in the NHL would like to do, and they ended up getting it from Nashville. A great guy. I know he's had some injury issues over his career. He's only played 82 games once in a season, but still, I mean, Chuck Fletcher, way to go. He hit a home run with this one. Tells you how deliberate and diligent, I suppose, they were in their approach to upgrade their blue line to get somebody to play beside Provorov, we know how how in they were in on the Seth Jones conversations, but they couldn't come mm-hmm. to a contract extension with him and his camp. Nope, not convinced he's going to sign there long-term. Okay, I guess we're out of that. Let's go find somebody else. They bring Ryan Ellis in. As I said, I think there's going to be some more moving and shaking with the Philadelphia Flyers. Where's Seth Jones going to end up? Man, this is going to be, whether it gets done this week, next week, or shortly after free agent, it's going to be a lot of fun. But it feels like most of it's going down in the next nine or ten days. It does. I mean, leading up to free agency off, obviously, I'm excited for tomorrow. Like, I, like, I don't know how much we're going to know, Scott, throughout the day as, like, stuff gets leaked out. If people get pictures of players in Seattle <laughs> for introduction, I don't know if anyone's going to be uh, staking out SeaTac to see who's coming in uh, to the city. But, I like, I'm excited. Just the anticipation of, first, the show, but... This is defining for not just their franchise, but it could be defining for many other franchises for year to come, specifically Montreal. A lot of fun to be had in NHL circles if you're a fan and it really revs up tomorrow. It's such a crazy week. We talked about the NBA Finals tonight. Big week for the National Hockey League. 
you got CFL camps on going, which are obviously on the back burner. And, oh, yeah, the Olympics are starting on Friday as oh, well, Karen. We're going to try to hook up with Devin Haru at some point this week. The timing's really challenging for him, so may have to be a pre-tape that still stands up. I'm not sure if we can hook up with our man on the ground over there for CBC. But they're, they're still not out of the woods over there from a COVID perspective, are they? 71 people, I believe, associated is the latest number that uh, with the games that have tested positive for COVID-19. I know Devin has said on air with us, and he's put it out there on Twitter, Scott. He said people that he has talked to, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. There's an outbreak in the Olympic uh, Village and with the athletes and how big that spreads. We do know this, though. There's going to be softball played tomorrow in Japan. I guess it's early in the morning our time here on the Pacific Coast and in the Mountain Time Zone. It would be uh, Canada is taking on to they're playing their first game in softball. They get play uh, Mexico at two o'clock in the morning Eastern. So what's that? Eleven p.m. our time here, um, midnight in the Mountain Time Zone. But it's it's getting underway, Scott. I'm still not sure if I'm okay with these games, honestly. Like I'm excited for the athletes, but I'm not sure. I'm hoping once they get started, I wrap my head around the fact, yes, they are going to be on and just be excited for the athletes, not think about everything that's going on in Tokyo and Japan right now. I think all you can do if you're conflicted, and I think a lot of people are, I think a lot of people are in the same place that you're at, Karen, not the least of which are residents in Japan who it doesn't sound like we're terribly supportive of this event ongoing. All you can really do is support the athletes and the choices Mm -hmm. they've made to be there and just hope for them that they stay healthy results we hey we're going to be cheering for the best results possible but hopefully it's an experience that lives up to whatever these athletes have built it up to be yeah we want to see medals and we want to get in on that medal count and all of that just get back healthy at some point mm-hmm. yeah that and that's where i guess i i will get to i mean i don't really care too much about the opening ceremonies that will be weird having no fans <laughs> it's gonna be an interesting experience for those flag bearers walking around an empty arena but I guess once the games get going, like you said, you just cheer for the athletes because for a lot of these athletes, this is the pinnacle of their career. They got it postponed last year. They finally get to be there. So winning Olympic medal, fans or not, COVID situation within Tokyo, you just have to kind of be happy for them to get to the goal that they ultimately set set themselves up for. You wonder how many games are being played right now behind the scenes. Ron Francis talking to players, talking to agents, talking to teams right now. We're going to get some answers as of tomorrow. Karen, you and I will be back at that time. Thank you very much for everything today. Great to have you back after an extended weekend. Big ups to Greg Ballack back at Mission Control. Josh Elliott Wolf, fine job jumping in for our judge, Judge Jamie, who's got the rest of the week off and producing the show today. We'll turn things over to the big show in Calgary. Bick and the Boss in Vancouver. We will be back tomorrow morning. Should be fun. We'll talk to you then.